So my name is Ian Stewart. And one way the geosciences advance sustainability is by delivering on improved human well-being. Welcome to SDG's Seismic Sound Off, conversations with geoscientists addressing the challenges of energy, water, and climate. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. In this powerful episode, expert geoscience communicator Ian Stewart opens our eyes to the hidden commons of the subsurface. Ian challenges us to rethink our relationship with the subsurface, outlining his vision of the subsurface as a new frontier, not just for resource exploitation, but as a space for sustainable development and urban innovation. This conversation tackles the geoscientist's dual role as Earth steward and resource extractor, emphasizing the importance of conveying geoscience's relevance to the public and decision-makers. Ian's expertise shines as he shares the greatest value of geoscientists and why studying geology is important. This episode will inspire you and help give geoscientists a new language to talk about the importance of their work to the world. Please check out the show notes for this episode's links and references. Let's get to my conversation with Ian Stewart. I'm excited to speak with you, Ian. You are an expert in geoscience communication. It's fun to have those type of people inclined to, to be great speakers on the podcast. And you're currently serving as the inaugural research chair of sustainability at the Royal Scientific Society. That might be new to a lot of listeners. What is your role in this position? I think it'll be new to most people. It was, it was new to me as well. <laughs> it's the inaugural chair, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Maybe it'll be the last as well. You know? No, so the Royal Scientific Society is a technical and scientific organization in Jordan in the Middle East. It's an interesting organization because it's a non-profit, non-governmental organization that gives scientific and technical advice to government, to business, to communities, to universities. What I think is unique about it is that we have 500-odd scientist specialists, lots of scientific labs, testing, monitoring, etc. So that's not especially new. We have research centers that focus on particular themes. So water, environment, climate, you can imagine in this region of the world is really important. Energy, particularly clean energy, but energy all the same. We, in Jordan, we don't have much fossil fuels, or if anything. Um, and buildings and infrastructure. But the, the thing that makes it truly interesting is our patron is uh, Prince Hassan, who's a great humanitarian, and his daughter is our, our president, is my boss. And again, she's a very, she's a great humanitarian. She's the goodwill ambassador for UNESCO for Science and Peace. So you have this organization that goes from science and testing products, virtually every product that gets in, comes in or out of Jordan goes through our laboratories all the way through to this humanitarian issue about how can we improve the human conditions, refugees, human security, etc. So that, that breadth is quite extraordinary. And that's one of the things that attracted me was to be a science communicator in such a broad portfolio. Mm, that must be an exciting way to use your skills and your abilities. You call it something the hidden commons, and it's a phrase I have not heard. What do you mean by that phrase? Well, it's one of those phrases you invent and, uh, and then you seek to define it thereafter. So, but the hidden, you know, so the idea of the, the tragedy of the commons is a very obvious and well 
rehearsed story about resource uh, availability and exploitation. But for me, the hidden commons is the subsurface. So one of the things that I think geoscience has been poor at exploiting is that we have a unique domain that no one else touches, and that is the subsurface. So we, we often fight over the surface domains and lots of the issues that geoscience talk about that they deal with, deal with that, that surface and very near surface environment. And that mixes up with geography, it mixes up with the other sciences. The subsurface world is ours. No one else wants it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. And the thing is that no, the, the ownership of the subsurface is a really interesting debate. Who owns the subsurface, as you go down into a few kilometers, you know, there's the old idea from the, that you, if you own a piece of parcel of land, you own from the heavens above to the center of the earth, this wedge that goes all the way down. But whenever that's tested in court, it's thrown out. You can't, you can't own something that's a thousand kilometers down or 300 kilometers down or 100 kilometers down. You can own something a few meters down. Uh, and that comes in with things like uh, fracking for shale gas. And it came in with uh, CCS. In other words, who own, do you own? The rock is immediately under the rock mass that's immediately underneath your house. And the reality in the courts is you don't own that because you can't exploit it. But it has implications. So the hidden commons for me is um, this business is this huge resource that as we move into the future and we think about sustainable development and all its different dimensions, is the parts of the subsurface that's going to be critical for sustainable development is the realm of geoscientists. And therefore, we should be exploiting our knowledge of the hidden commons. And the challenge is to justify that and to sell that to the public and, and the politicians, the, the decision makers, say this is an important frontier. And that frontier has got uh, you know, the exploitation of resources, but it's also places that we may store stuff whether it goes from rad waste to, you know, hydrogen all the way through to ex extracting stuff. But it's more than that. It's the realization that in many parts of the world, uh, the future of cities is probably going to lie in the deep subsurface. The vertical urbanism we've built up the way, but what about down the way? And as climate change and places get, for example, temperatures in the tropics get, get warmer, then more and more of life's activities are going to start happening in the in the subsurface of cities and things like that. And, and if you're building in the subsurface of cities, you absolutely need a geoscientist to be to be doing that. So the hidden commons for me is that notion of a new frontier that if we can sell it right, is completely unique to ourselves. So you have this new frontier that the governance can be a little complicated and difficult to figure out the stewardship piggybacking on that, what, like who is responsible for it if no one really owns it or we can't figure out who owns it. And you talk about building empathy for this, for the subsurface. Do you think that is the proper direction for geoscientists to go to get people to care about what is happening in these hidden commons? Yeah, I, I tell you why. You know, we what really perplexes me is we have this fascination for space, don't we? We stare up at the heavens. And we look out at that starry sky and we go, wow. And anything, you know, I've done a lot of television and we stayed away from space science because it had an amazing audience and that audience loves space and they'll just devour anything about space. But here's the thing. It's em broadly empty up there. 
that, you know, these planets that we look at are millions of miles apart. We'll never reach most of them. It's empty. And most of the stuff we can never access. And yet the irony is underneath our feet is a bunch of stuff that we can access and is really useful. So why is it that space has got that emotional appeal? And how can we, can we translate that into an emotional appeal for the subsurface? And we kind of know we can, you know, the Jules Verne, Journeys to the Center of the Earth, you know, how many movies, usually bad movies, but you know, how many movies do we think about that is descending into the planet, you know? So I, I kind of think that if we've got an, a bit of imagination amongst our community, we can start to sell this idea of what would happen if we took a fraction of the budget that we do to go up into space and go off hunting for meteorites or moon or Mars, a fraction of that to go down into the earth. And I think that selling this idea that if you become a geoscientist in the 21st century, the frontier is not up there in the sky, but is down there underneath your feet. If we can do that, if we can find narratives and stories for that, then we make geoscience a much more attractive option. You talk about geoscientists dealing with this dilemma where at once they're the Earth steward, they're trying to find oil and gas and other things and, and use them as well as they can. And then they're also exploiting those by getting those things by mining and, and getting the oil and gas out of the earth, out of the subsurface. How do you how do you think about that dilemma for a geoscientist? Yeah, I mean, I, they're in members of a continuum. So I think that uh, at one extreme is we're nasty people that just extract stuff from the earth and we're horrible and it's all this kind of stuff. And there's you know, plenty of examples of that rhetoric. At the other end, you know, there's this notion that we are these guardians of the planet because we've spent all of our time studying its four and a half billion year history, all its rhythms. We know that it's, uh, it, we know how it operates as a system. Your average geoscientist probably sits somewhere in the middle and probably over the course of their career may move from one into another area. I don't know a geoscientist that doesn't care deeply about the earth. I mean, even, I, you know, even people who work in the, the, the front line of oil exploration and mineral exploration still don't want to see themselves as polluters or despoilers of the earth because that's the reason they got interested in the first place. But they carry a responsibility to deliver stuff for society you know modernity modern world wants lots of materials and the materials generally come from from the earth you know the old adage if you can't grow it it comes from the earth it's dug from the earth so i think that um, we have this slightly ambivalent perhaps even kind of schizophrenic view of the flipping you know from one side to the other as geoscientists but the reality is that most of us are somewhere in the middle but how we do it. My, my take is that I think that if we can push and emphasize the fact that we're Earth stewards, that even if we're resource exploiters, we want to do so in a sustainable way and we're, we're not there for a, a fast buck uh, just to get in there and boom and bust, which we've got lots of examples of, that if we can convey this notion that we're Earth stewards, Earth guardians, that's a more positive and progressive view than we're just there to take stuff from the earth because we can, you know, because we have the knowledge and we have the right. I don't think it's, it's a tenable viewpoint in, the, in this part of the 21st century. You know, before this position, you were at the Sustainable Earth Institute. 
and you've been in this field of geoscience communication and, and being a professional for years. Do you feel like now the conversation around climate change, the energy transition is kind of one of an agreement on kind of some basic facts and let's look ahead? Or do you still feel like you're you're informing and educating people on on where the earth is and where it might be going? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I think geologists have struggled to position themselves here. We, geologists are simple people. <laughs> you know, we, we're very simple people. Our subject hasn't changed much in 100 years, 150 years. Uh, and we've got a very strong sense of legacy of this is the way we were trained and this is the way we will train other people. And I think there's something nice about that, but I think it's held us back. I think when climate, the whole climate change came around, Geologists did not like that at all. You know, we, we knew that climate changed dramatically over geological time. And, and we have lots, and there are still a few pockets of this, of saying, you know, that natural climate change is what's driving it all. And especially because the two vocational areas that took most of our graduates, mining and particularly oil and gas, uh, were kind of deemed as the irresponsible parts of this and, and get demonized and all the rest of it. So we got very defensive and very protective. And I think what that meant was that it took a long time for geologists to get on board with the climate change agenda. And one of the things we missed was a lot of the evidence for climate change was coming in decadal records, so yearly, annual to decadal records, ice cores, tree rings, etc. Geologists don't have decadal records. You may go back in time and the tiniest little mud layer is 100,000 years. You know, like we, we can't do that. So I think that what we as geologists have is a very blurred, ble- you know, blood smeared out view of Earth history, but it goes back a long way. And the, the real challenge with climate change was a very high res- resolution record for the last few decades. So we were slow to the party and we were very defensive uh, because from either us or our best friends were in this industry that was getting demonized. But I think geologists have always been late to the bar. When plate tectonics come along in the 60s, geologists are the last people who accept it. The geophysicists accept it and all the rest of it. But the geologists are going, no, no, this fad thing from the oceans talking about plates moving, that's a load of rubbish. And it takes about a decade before mainstream geology accepts it. And now it sits right in the middle of our subject. You know, it's, you can't imagine geology without plate tectonics. I think it's becoming that now in geology. Because with the new, with the idea of climate change and the energy transition, it's kind of nudged and forced its way into the mainstream. And now when we write research grants or we sell ourselves to students, we talk about climate change, we talk about the energy transition, and we talk about the centrality of geology and geologists to that. But it has taken a while. And I do think that, that we have slightly missed the boat in the policy area. So that when you talk about the big decision makers in this, you know, biodiversity and the biologists have grabbed a lot of the territory. The physicists, a lot of the other sciences are much more mainstream and geologists are kind of on the edge, knocking on the door saying, you know, what about us? It's about the planet. We study the planet. We should be allowed in. I think if we'd got faster onto that, we would be in a slightly better position, but we're playing catch up. But I think that, um, that I don't think there's any doubt that if you look around the way that university courses are reshaping itself, these topics are now become central because that's, they're the topics that the youngsters are interested in. And they're the topics that the jobs are becoming, you know, they're switching across to. So it's, the, it's a no-brainer. Do you think that mindset, in particular of a geologist that is looking at 
millions of years, you know, not looking at a year. Do you think that kind of perspective, how do you think that benefits this climate change and energy transition? What unique things do they bring because of that perspective? Yeah, I think we talk a lot of time about deep time and long time scales, but I think we overplay that hand. I think it is important and other scientists don't have that longevity of, of reach in terms of the kind of lines of inquiry. But as I say, I think sometimes that gives us a very smeared out, blurry view of, of the Earth's past. I think what's better is that multidisciplinary approach that we have. We are essentially an interdisciplinary science. We, we take from, we steal, we steal from biology. We steal from physics. We steal from mass. We chemistry. We jam it all together. And we, we call it, you know, geology. And so I think that aspect is important. The problems we have in the modern world need that multidimensional, multidisciplinary approach. And we, that we just take it for granted. I think there's something else as well. And any geologist will know that we are immersed in uncertainty. You know, geology always confuses you because, you know, you'll have a, a geologist will have an outcrop here or some data here. And then several kilometers away, there have another set of data. And they'll extrapolate between the two. They'll, they'll have some kind of theory that connects. Every other rational science would say, we do not have enough data. We need to go away and get more. But the geologists will say, hey, I think I know how to connect, you know? So, so we're used to not having the full data set. We don't expect to have the full data set because most of it's obscured. And I think that if you take that idea and you translate it into the contemporary world of the sustainability, we don't have all the data. We, there's lots of gaps and uncertainties. But I think the geologist is the one that will make a, a leap of faith and go, you know what, based on what I see, this is what I think it is. It sure would be nice to have more data. And if we get that, great. But on basis of what we got, this is my guess. I think that's a huge skill. And I don't think the other sciences do that. So my, my take is that uh, geoscience is a very special discipline. And it throws up a very different way of looking at the world. And that is what our greatest value is. It's not been able to identify Muscovite under the microscope or, you know, know certain number of types of rocks or be able to do this geophysics or something. There, there are skills that are useful, but the mindset that we create in our heads is probably our biggest advantage. If you were speaking to a mixed audience, so you have geoscientists in the room, you have political leaders in the room, and you have the public in the room, and you're you're setting the ground rules for a conversation on the future of the subsurface. Would there be some things that you would say, this is like an agreed upon, like a, a red line essentially, like we like we're based on we're basing this conversation on these three things that we know to be true, or I, you know, from my perspective, I know to be true. Do you do you have some things that you would say in that? presentation of like, we're, we're working from this conversation based on X. Yeah, it's, that's a tr it's a tricky one. My, my take in it is if you're talking, whoever you're talking to, it's about them. That's the first thing. So you're, you're trying to suss, you're trying to work out what they're interested in. And then you're trying to bend what you know to them. So I think and we often make this mistake of starting where we are and try to impress on people how important our viewpoint is. And I think that from a basic communication point of view, that's that's flawed. You, you're, your communications are bound to fail and not connect if you do it that way. So we have this problem that we've got this very strange, unfamiliar thing that we want to sell, which is this geology world or the subsurface. 
And we see this a lot when there's controversies about the subsurface. The way that the people see the world down there is, compl- well, usually they've never even thought about it. So if you say something about what do you think's down there, nine times out of 10, that's the first time anyone's ever even asked that question to them. And people are, have no reference points apart from maybe some Hollywood movies to think about it. So you got to realize that it's not part of their everyday conversation. So one way that's not bad to do that is to talk about how amazing the world is down there, the subsurface world. You know, what would the things that we do know about it, the the fact of just how much of our everyday life we get from the subsurface. And that can at least start you into a conversation with people about that. But I do think that the it's a double-edged sword. This alien world that we were talking about is both a, a hindrance because it's a barrier for people intellectually to get their head around. But equally, it's fascinating because they go, you what? I can't believe you're telling me this. You know, the simplest things, people will say, really? Is that, can that be true? You know, it's because they've never thought about it. So I think it's about really us trying to think about what's our hidden gems, what's our really key stories. And that is that we know quite a lot about the subsurface. And what we know is there's lots of useful stuff down there and lots of fascinating stuff. And we should try and know more about it. And then as we, you know, have that conversation with whoever it is, we can we can decide how to negotiate and navigate that story based on what the person's interested in, you know, because I think there's lots of different ways that that could go. When we, you know, had the race to the moon in the 60s, the Hubble telescope, some of those pictures and images that we saw really struck the imagination of a lot of the world. Is there something equivalent that you think if the world was, you were able to capture in the subsurface or maybe something is going on right now that you think could really serve as this catalyst where people could see the possibilities of what is beneath their feet? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, what is interesting, you mentioned the Hubble, but the thing that, as you said, that popped into my head is that famous photograph from the one of the Apollo mission Earthrise, which is the shot of the moon barren in the foreground and the earth resplendent in blue and green arriving on the, the far thing. And that was something that catalyzed a lot of the environmental activism in the, the late 60s and early 70s when they had Earth Day. And, you know, this fragile, vulnerable planet, this, this pale blue dot that Carol Sagan talks about, you know. So I, I think that these, this imagery is really important but I don't think there is one for the subsurface because it's very dark down there. <laughs> and I know that sounds <laughs> so trivial, but when you work, we, I work a lot in television. And one of the things we come across all the time is there's amazing stories with the subsurface. But as soon as you try to visualize them, you come up with this problem that you can't, you know, you're talking about visualizing something inside solid rock and the only way you can play around with that is pretending you're not in solid rock and you can move through it. And, and then then you give them wrong in, in, interpretation of how you move through the earth. So people then start thinking there's rivers or there's caves. You know, so it's a really difficult thing. So I think conveying the subsurface in traditional, conventional ways is really problematic. Uh, you know, you've all everyone's seen the film The Core, where they end up in some 
cave that's in the mantle and they get out. You know, I mean, it just goes crazy. But that's what they have to do in order to make sense of that, that world. So I, I think that um, this is where it's quite interesting, the space thing, because some of the ideas of space are really complicated. very, very abstract ideas of what some of these features are. But people seem to be okay with that, with that very high-level, abstract ideas. I think it's just the case of maybe it's the language of the subsurface we need to start to think about more than the visual language of the subsurface. But, I mean, maybe it's a little easier in the very near subsurface, you know. I, I don't know anyone who, if they walk past the hole, the deep hole, doesn't look in. You know, why? Why is that? Why do you stare across? Well, it's that, you know, there is something there and it's in quite intriguing, mysterious, maybe quite dark, but there's something there. There's an emotional connection to the subsurface. I think the other thing that we've maybe lost is, you know, how did we look, how do other cultures look at the subsurface? How did we look at it before science? I've sometimes used as a slide in some of my talks, you know, the opening sequ uh, sequence in Stranger Things, where you have a surface world and then you have the same world reflected in the darker way in the subsurface. That the subsurface for most people is this dark, mysterious, dangerous place. So you know, that's the rhetoric that's, that's out there already because bad things come up from, you know, things come up and take you and take you down, you know, come back to Greek mythology, pull you down into the subsurface. So that's all negative. But I think what it's telling is that, that there is an intrinsic interest in the subsurface. And that if we can understand that and play around with it, there will be good things we can put across or just fascinating things that we can put across. If you could snap your finger and either have you know, the public, the world understands something about the subsurface or vice versa, maybe something is known, like it becomes a, a thing that is known about the subsurface. What what would that be? Wow. I'd, do you know what? I'd love to, the outer mantle, you know, that fluid outer mantle. I remember someone telling me that it's got, you know, it's kind of got the viscosity of not, not water, but very, it's a very fluid, you know, that that is essentially an ocean. Uh, and it's got tides and it's got currents and all the rest of it. And, and just the idea of, of surfing in the outer mantle ocean with is quite a nice idea. So I'd like to know, I mean, that's all based on theoretical thermodynamics and, you know, uh, mineral physics and things like that. But I love the idea that there's an interior ocean that we could know more about. And I guess the classic thing that really annoys geologists is the notion that the continents float on this ocean of lava and magma. You know, it's the classic mistake and, and geologists go crazy about it. But it's kind of funny because uh, at, at the end of the day, the reason we have plate tectonics is because the mantle and the asthenosphere is a fluid-like material. It just flows very slowly over geologic time, but it flows. It's a fluid. And so you can kind of understand the, the general public's confusion as we talk about this thing as a flowing, and it, but it's not a liquid, you know. So, so I guess my, my thing would be that idea of deep flows in the earth and how tricky they are to explain, but how enigmatic they would be to experience. Do you think the bigger evolution and the understanding of the subsurface or the emphasis on the subsurface would happen from from the general public 
just understanding it, like the value it brings or advancing the scientific understanding of the subsurface? Which do you think if there was a leap in, in either the scientific advancement or the understanding of it on a public level of what we currently know, what do you think would move the needle more? Do you know, I, I'm going to hedge my bet somewhere in the middle because I think that we don't, that there's plenty of scientific and academic things to still discover of this subsurface, but I'm not sure I can imagine one that would just tip the balance and suddenly they'll go, oh my God, that's amazing. And likewise, in terms of the public, the public encounter the subsurface when there's a problem, fracking, carbon capture storage, I'm worried about this, and all this thing, this baggage I was mentioning about this, the subsurface being this dark and dangerous place that we don't want to go to. I think that one of the things will be geoscientists being able to more convey the subsurface in interesting ways, passionate ways about why they think it's a important in a way in in ways that the public can get and can understand and think gosh that's amazing one of the most amazing places i've ever filmed was in the crystal cave of north of mexico and this is the los cava de cristales and it's gypsum crystals so one of the most basic minerals you get but they're like 5 10 20 meters tall along you know it's an extraordinary place and we had that as a, a sequence in one of our shows the first 7 minutes it is the most extraordinary place. It looks like Superman's ice cave, you know? And lots, so lots of people were drawn by this. And we have no idea how common that is, that kind of stuff, because it was a, it's a pretty unique place. But there's probably lots of these types of uh, places in the subsurface that we don't know about. So I think there'll be an element of geologists that really understand the subsurface conveying that understanding in a in a accessible way to people and that would be the that would be one of the game changers what challenge would you like to leave the listener from this conversation i think it's how geology improves the human condition and that sounds very big and you know bombastic but you know when geology first emerges as a discipline with James Hutton in the 1780s, the theory of the earth and its roots. It's the Scottish Enlightenment or it's the Enlightenment in, in the UK that then goes into the Industrial Revolution. And the whole thrust of scientific endeavor at that time was to improve the condition of humanity. And the Industrial Revolution was seen as one way of doing that. And geology was tied inexorably to the to the Industrial Revolution, coal, minerals, etc. We we drove it, you know, geoscience drove it. And and of course now those same processes is what's producing climate change and exploitation, the biodiversity a lot, and it's seen as bad. So I think that from geologists' point of view, what we need to do is start to reset the dial a little bit and think, why are we doing why are we trying to understand the planet? And what Hutton says is we're trying to understand the planet because we live in a habitable world. In other words, it's our planet that we inhabit. That's why we're trying to understand. It's, it's the continuation of the sustainability of life is why we're studying geology. And I think we need to slightly recapture that when we sell it to our students, etc. is that we're, we're not just a, a feeder for the minerals industry or a feeder for the oil and gas industry or a feeder for this, or engineering geology. What we're doing is we're trying to understand the planet because we can make it a better place as a result of our knowledge. And that's things like, um, you know, understanding that our 
knowledge of geochemistry can help with health issues. It's that we, a lot of water in many parts of the world, in this part of the world that I am, in the Middle East or in Africa, is groundwater. We know where the groundwater is. We use the same techniques that we use for oil and gas to find the water. So, you know, employer geologists will find the water for you. So, in a whole set of ways, the geologist, I think, is a, a critical, a key player, really, for humanity in the 21st century. So, but I think it's trying to do that. I think it's trying to make the case that we're more than just that we find oil and gas and we find metals and that's what you, you know, what's in your smartphone, don't you know that a geologist has found that? It's a very one-dimensional argument. I think we need to be broader. We need to say we are, we understand the planet and we can make your lives better as a result of our understanding of the planet. Well, Ian, I appreciate your time on this. Thanks for speaking with me. We could definitely go much longer than the time we had allotted. Uh, there's a lot to discuss. So maybe we'll have you back for an- another round. Uh, Adra, I'd be very, very pleased to. Fantastic. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seismic Sound Off. SEG creates these episodes to celebrate and inspire the geophysicists of today and tomorrow. Visit seg.org to learn more. Email the show at podcast at seg.org. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary, at TreasureMet. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Allie McGinnis. The podcast will return next week with a new episode. Until then, this is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.